We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a Arsenal performance means we've done the double over terrible Chelsea. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, I usually don't like to reiterate stuff I've said in the instant reaction pods, but I think it's important because the minutia of UEFA rulings is such that not everybody can always follow them. I, I mean, I think you need like four legal degrees to understand the UEFA rules. I happen to have one legal degree, which was enough for me to dig in. And uh, in an esoteric little-known ruling from many years back, it actually says if you do the double... Uh, domestically, over one of the Champions League finalists, you actually take their place in the final. So uh, not only did we thoroughly dominate Chelsea in a stunningly easy win, we also now uh, will represent the Premier League uh, facing another Premier League opponent, obviously Manchester City in the Champions League final. Chance to be named European champions and, and be in the Champions League next season. So it stinks for Chelsea, but to be fair, what did they deserve from that performance? Obviously, absolutely nothing. We will get into that domination and more with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Soberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, Luke. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. I did not know that ruling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the law degree comes in handy from time to time, folks. Uh, we have been teasing the live event. I'm going to tease it a little more. It's going to be in Las Vegas. That's all I can tell you right now, but it is going to be in Las Vegas. Uh, there will be copious uh, drink specials, free drinks, events, live events, speakers, 
uh, parties, watch parties, um, bars just for us and for what we're doing, live studios that we're going to be performing in uh, with audiences, FIFA tournaments, all kinds of stuff. But we'll give you more details uh, when the specific details are announced. So it's a little tease there. Mike Tyson, a Bengal tiger? Uh, yes, Mike Tyson, a Bengal tiger. Bas- basically, we're just doing the hangover, but for real. Um, so <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which hangover, which one of the... the Obviously, well, one of them took place in Bangkok, so it's not going to be that one, I guess. Um, okay, so... Having gotten that out of the way, uh, let's dive into it. Tim, I'll start with you. You know, Mm. it is the reality that this has been a difficult season. And in difficult seasons, I think the most important thing you can do is try to extract joy wherever it is available. I find there is a tension for me between the analytical brain saying, "I I have thoughts, I have takes on the performance... And the emotional brain that says, we did the double over Chelsea. I can text my Chelsea mates and tell them they stink. I can I can laugh about it. I can absolutely lick every tear, every salty tear of, of Chelsea fans and journalists saying, Arsenal are lucky. They didn't deserve it. Thomas Tuchel go, you know, losing his mind. Oh, clearly we, we, they didn't deserve it, but I guess good for them. Ha ha. So I can, I can love that. Do you have any tension at all in joining this? I saw you tweet out that it was mm-hmm. obviously um, the, the scoreline flattered Chelsea. I'm here for that kind of take. Um, how do you find yourself reacting in the wake of doing the double over Chelsea, a fun result, maybe in a manner that isn't exactly vintage Invincibles football? Yeah, sure. I, I think you can do both of those things. I, d- I don't think there has to be a tension between them. I think you can really enjoy it. And I, like, I really enjoy jam- I, I enjoy any Arsenal win, but I really enjoy jammy Arsenal wins. I really enjoy jammy Arsenal wins <laughs> because over they teams boil I piss. hate. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Particularly over teams I hate. Um, I really, really enjoy that. Um, so I, I think you can do both. I think you can kind of say, that was great fun. Really liked that. Not sure that that's, you know, a sustainable way of playing or how many times if that game gets replayed again, we come away with the win. I think you can do both of them. I think very much probably the way I'd split it um, is in the moment and in the hours afterwards. And, you know, all those nice moments when the final whistle goes and, you know, the half an hour or so afterwards when you've got that kind of warm glow and when you wake up the next morning and you remember and you go, oh, yeah, that happened last night, didn't it? That was funny. And you kind of start the process again in those moments, um, you know, just really enjoy it. But there's, well, I say there's plenty of time between matches. Maybe that's overstating it, but there's time between matches. Maybe in the 24, 48 hours afterwards, you can kind of go, okay, I've had my fun with that. And, you know, I guess think about it more clearly and more rationally if you want to. Um, You know, you don't have to do that. But um, I I get what you mean about the tension um, between the two. I I certainly do both. Um, But I, I don't really regard it as a tension, to be honest. I just think it's, it's kind of, both sides of um of the fan experience for me i like both i like the visceral i like celebrating um you know i don't like being miserable obviously but that's all part of it and the victory is a sweeter with that and and i like the analytical side and i I really don't like the idea portrayed by many people that the analytical side is somehow you know is somehow miserable or people who enjoy stats are just nerds who are just ruining the game and it's like some people enjoy stats you know that's that's you know people enjoy numbers and figures and data and that's that's just a another enhancement of their enjoyment so um i i enjoy analyzing as well for better and for worse so for me it's it's all good it's all love it's all enjoyment it's just different types of enjoyment and there aren't many things in the world where you can get 
um, you know, multifaceted levels of enjoyment out of something. Yeah, and here's the problem, right? Like, after you've punched the air, said, yes, great win, then what do you say? <laughs> right? <laughs> so then you have to say, let's talk about how we got to that win. And that involves analyzing the performance, and then you have to look at it warts and all. Some of the things that are very good and some weren't. I said this on the Instant Reaction Pod, but I, I want to reiterate it because it's really sort of crystallized for me. When the fan energy is there, when you have a full crowd at the ground, there is a visceral transmission of that energy, even if you're watching at home through the screen. You feel like you're a part of that crowd. I referenced the 8-2 at Old Trafford. I remember being so mad on that day, but after hearing the away fans, of which I I imagine you were among them, Tim, Mm -hmm. singing, we love you, Arsenal, we do, through the entire almost second half of that 8-2, there was almost a pride that swelled up in me. I imagine it would have been very different had there been no fans at the ground. And so that visceral reaction is gone. And in a dead season where we're really not playing for anything, you know what the football stops being? It stops being this visceral thing and it just starts being entertainment. A thing you watch to be entertained. And when it's just a thing you watch to be entertained, you lose so much of what makes football special. Now we haven't lost it completely, but I think that that is a part of why I struggle a little bit because you punch the air and then there's this void. There's this hollowness to the whole season. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and the 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 reality is like you really need that visceral side because um in most of a football match nothing's really happening. Um and actually like football matches exist in this weird um this weird kind of bubble where it's the anticipation that something might happen, that one goal might win it for you in one moment or in one second or you know like last night, you know, someone hit a bad back pass it didn't quite go in. We got it in. That's it. We won the game in that one moment. Everything else that happened in that game is basically irrelevant. And so so football exists in this weird... Um, maybe it's not that weird, actually. Maybe it's a nice metaphor for life that the anticipation is kind of almost better than the moment itself. So you do have to fill those gaps and you fill it with the tension and the anticipation of what might happen um, because actually for most of the match, nothing much really does happen. Mm, yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I mean, to be fair, like if we look at different seasons and different things, like this is a season where I feel we've had more of these types of games go against us than for us. We had the Burnley game where Shaka kicks it in to our own net off, you know, off a Burnley player and we drop points we shouldn't have. The Wolves game where we're dominating and Louise gets a really harsh penalty and red card. We've, I feel like we've had more of those than these. Last season, we had the Liverpool win at the Emirates that felt a little more like this. We had a City win um, in the FA Cup that felt a little bit more like this. So it's been a tougher season in terms of kind of getting our run of luck from games where we needed things to break our way and we got it in this game. We'll talk a little bit about Arteta's reaction, his feisty... Um, frustrated press reaction um, on this episode because that's something that I think we want to get to. But let's get into the game. So, Clive, if I had to say which part of the game I think we played better would be the second half because I think in the second half we played low block defensive football but we played it effectively. In the first half, I'm not sure we really knew exactly what we wanted to commit to. We made some mistakes too. I mean, you could be saying this was a 1-1 decided by two mistakes, right? A bad back pass that led to our goal and an error that let Kai Havertz clean through where if he, you know, if he scores, it's a different story. Obviously he didn't. Ha ha. It's hilarious. There were some things in the first half that I thought were problematic. I thought Gabriel was having trouble finding players. There was just a lot of passing that's not working. And this has been something that's driving me nuts lately. Just our inability at tempo to accurately find players with passes 
you know, one-touch passes, quick passing, and it wasn't working. But I want to highlight Bukayo Saka. I think Arteta's done him a little bit of a disservice. He's such a good player that he can be good in so many positions. But he's overusing that, in my view. He has moved Saka around the pitch so many times, and coming off a game against West Brom where he was dominant as a left-back, now he's playing as a right-back. This was sort of another tinkered lineup where I remember in our live stream we were trying to guess what it would look like because we weren't totally sure. How do you feel about the fact that he he sort of switched it up again, moved Saka to another side of the pitch? Would you like him to have been a little more settled in how he's using players in particular, someone as talented and young as Bukayo? I think um, the, the things about passing and moving people around is, is slightly linked, actually. And um, Yeah, it's a good point. When, Automatisms, yep. When you... When you watch that game, obviously we had a good defensive performance. It was a off-the-ball game, and, and we did some good off-the-ball stuff, and we, we won a game that we don't really deserve to from an Arsenal perspective because we're used to dominating the ball, lovely patterns, really creative goals, and we feel happy when we see that. But when we see this, we, we, we question ourselves. We even tell ourselves we can't enjoy a win. So we're quite good at losing Arsenal. We're quite good at analysing losses, Arsenal people. But when we win, we we question ourselves if we can even enjoy it. And I was thinking about this today about the balance of our... Yeah, we are, we are. We love our number 10s, don't we? We love our flow. Um, So I was thinking about this today, actually. So you've asked me a good question. I was thinking about why, where has the balance gone between defence and attack? And something that I think we're not doing enough of is switching the point of attack from one side to the other. So what's happening? I know it's against Villarreal. We're getting pinned to the touchline. The touchline is a defender. So what we do as fans is we look at the player that's giving the ball away. So last night early on was Gabriel giving the ball away. But really, most of the times he was pinned to a touchline or pinned to a side. There was no exit and there's no ability to switch the play. Either one, because he may have to use his right foot, he didn't want to, come inside and switch. Or two, because maybe the option is not there, the, the thought press is not there, the patterns is not there. And I think back to last year, we did play a back three. A number of times, we did switch the point of attack quite a lot from side to side. The zigzag call, I always call it. So I do think we have to develop that ability. Liverpool do it very well. They switch from side to side and then create overloads on the side or whatever, you know, exposed. We don't do that enough. We we stay in our zones. We we put a lot of pressure on certain individuals. And I, I, we're being pressed off the ball a lot, and we're not really building up. Like this is something we were really really good at. And you know, I make these jokes about people not being able to kick the ball. I really mean it. Because when David Luiz plays, we switch the point of the attack. We don't kick it straight. We get, we we switch it. We have diagonals, yeah. and that means people can't pin us in. And what's happening lately? We've lost our soul. We've lost ourselves. Because we're not switching. We're not moving the ball. We're not running off the ball. We're not gambling early. We're not getting the pitch in a, in a block. We're not switching playing. When you're thinking about the summer, which I am massively, <laughs> when you think about the summer, you've got to think about this. This pattern and the best teams switch the point of the attack and expose the edges of the other team. We are becoming easily pressured and pressed. Now, Saka now, we, what we've done, we got used to, what we, what we do a lot of is we play into the young boys. And they've got a nice ability to roll around the corner and then do a little one-two and then them are off and running. So we tend to use people with individual talent, Pepe another one, to roll around people. You notice we're getting fouled a lot. We're getting kicked a lot. We're getting pressed a lot. Mm. 
and they're and they're receiving the ball deeper. They're getting pushed back, and we're not really running through people like we used to. But we're being analysed again. So if I'm building a team in my mind, which I am, trust me, <laughs> I'm looking at this. I'm looking at how Liverpool switch. I'm looking at how City switch on occasions. And it's something we have to develop, and this will come in pre-season. Then, and players like Saka will benefit because they'll be on the ed- edges of those switches rather than having to beat three men to then play a, a medium distance pass to then go out the other side. And what's happening, I've noticed that teams are shuffling across and they're blocking us off. And we're not really scoring nice flow goals, right? So, so yeah, yeah, Saka's suffering. We all know the drill with him. He's, he's a superstar, right? We've got to look after him. His head's falling a little bit lately. I know what I would do. I'd sit him down for the rest of the season. I would not play him. We don't need him. He's got enough minutes. 3,200 minutes or so, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's got a potential um, summer tournament. If he does, great. If he doesn't, I'll be happy. Sit down, mate. Get your flip-flops on and get out there and rest up your legs because what you've done for us for the last year has been incredible. What we mustn't do is confuse him. Next year has got to be about solidifying his role. And for me, he's in attacking end of the pitch. He's left or right. If we are going to play him as a 10, fine. There's one of those three behind a one. Let's not bring him back into defence anymore. I don't think it's a, a useful way to use a player like that. We've got to clear his mind, and I hope we do that soon. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think when you have players like Smith, Rowe, and Saka, who are obviously the future of your club, obviously extremely talented, and obviously a crucial part of your project, I know everyone's getting sick of that term, one of the things it's incumbent upon you to do is sort of pick a few players that you are wedded to, that you are anchored to, and build a system that most effectively deploys them. So Thomas Party, you've committed huge to him. Aubameyang, you've committed huge to him. Saka and ESR, your your star young, your, your future stars, right? Or current stars, depending on how you see it. I'd love to see a system where they are consistently deployed in the same way that we say that's the bones of what we're building. And around that, we'll start to fill in. Maybe it'll be Martinelli and Pepe. Maybe it'll be other players. You know, maybe Odegaard will come in or it'll be a Bundy or whatever it is. Maybe Shaka will go out and we'll get a Basuma. That'd be, you know, that'd be amazing in my view. But the point is, I'd like to see those those players starting to have clear roles. And and as great as Saka was at left back against West Brom, now he's right back against Chelsea. That didn't work so well. I'd just rather we we kind of have a system where we know where we're using those most important pieces. Oba, Smithrow, Saka, Party, so that they can thrive. Um Paul, to be fair, so I didn't love the first half. I thought that was our more inconsistent period where when we tried to play, we didn't play particularly well. When we were defending, we made some mistakes. They had three pretty good chances, the the Havertz one being one of them. That was on an individual error. But if there is one thing we were doing reasonably well, it's pressing. And it's kind of been an inconsistent experience this season with the press. I think against Villarreal... We criminally underused it and misused it, which is a real regret because seeing it in the first half, it was one of the things I actually liked. The way we were closing down, the way we were making it difficult for them to play out. And when we've been successful against Chelsea in the past, I think we've seen something about how Aspilicueta and Zuma and, you know, whether it was Christensen who was playing or, you know, whoever it is, that they're not particularly comfortable with the ball at their feet. So is the press something in the first half for you that you would have pointed to as, as a highlight? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought the first, you know, actually leading up to the goal, um, this was a fairly even contest. Maybe they had a little bit the better of it, but yeah. no great surprise there. Uh, we started strong for three or four minutes. Then they had some possession. Then it was back to us. We were playing, you know, if you think about that 
Marie screw up uh, with the Gabrielle pass to him. Um, that's a pretty high line for where we're playing. When you see as we game progresses and we sit deeper and deeper, we're pretty high up the pitch as we're kind of, it's going yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Um, and then we do the bit of pressing for a few minutes leading into the goal. And, uh, you know, good stuff. We get a goal. Um, then they create a bit of pressure. The, obviously, there's the Havertz chance that comes before that. But Mount has a couple of chances. Um, they have quite a bit of possession and dominance for a while. But it, it's contested in the middle of the park. It's not us sitting back. I, I like the first half more than the second half, I have hmm, to say. And we finished okay. the, sec- the first half fairly strongly uh, going in. And like that's why they made, in part, that's, I think, why they made the Gilmore change. Because they were a long way from from really uh, dominating the game. They had the better of the first half, but then we were sitting on something there. <clears throat> I, th- I mean, I think overall we're still being a tad too sniffy here because, let's face it, we all thought we were going to get bashed and uh, going around the pitch, man for man, most of our players have some kind of an issue in terms of where we're playing them or the form they're in or coming back, etc. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, ballsy to change everything in some ways and go man to man with Chelsea three at the back a proper three at the back which we, we have a kind of a a part-time three at the back we sometimes do with a checker or something like that but this was three center backs uh, everybody could see the structure man to man basically two attacking eights it was interesting i enjoyed it and uh, particularly the first half because i felt we maintained our shape in the second half they kind of squished us a bit and it was a bit more of a free-for-all and it was just kind of resilience determination etc i think that's the part i liked (laughs) because the first half just felt a little ropier and luckier whereas the second half i felt we actually prevented them from doing much until the very end you know yeah i think we played more in the first half we did undeniable yep yeah we had 30 percent possession in the second half (laughs) yeah and can consider like as I say, you could go around the team. Obama Yang, not you know struggling for fitness and form. You've got uh, you know the midfield party has been struggling for form and overall. I mean, he made some mistakes, but overall he was good. Um, El Nani's a good, average, solid player. Our centre backs, there's a story with all of them. We got Sack on the right out of position. We got Tierney coming back. Fitness-wise, uh, Odegaard coming back fitness-wise. I mean, if you're the manager, you're putting out a team and thinking, Jesus Christ, I've kind, kind of got a, an issue in almost every position. And, you know, they've been pretty dominant lately. So coming out with anything in this game was great. Uh, I think we all enjoy that aspect of it. The, fairly well matching up to them in the first half, even if we were a bit lucky. Um that was interesting. You know, I, I did genuinely enjoy the effort in the second half and some aspects of the por- performance in the first half. Um, though, yeah, we, we had our luck, but we've, it feels like we were due some. And then performance-wise, like, I take the criticism that maybe we're the kind of team should go at them with our style and, and play our football. We're not quite there at the moment. We're not quite there, particularly at this point in the season. And we've done that so often, I think, in particular in the last three or four months where we played a very attacking style, um, attacking players that it's like, this is one of those games. I'm just glad he found a way to get something done here. We Mm -hmm. got a bit of luck. We rode it. 
Um, but we got the first goal by being proactive and, you know, I'll take that too. Yeah. Um, by the way, yeah. to your point about like, you know, strategy, who's to say we didn't want to play with the ball more and attack more. Sometimes you just can't like, uh, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you can draw it up on the board and you can say, all right. And in the second half, we're not going to get pushed back and you get pushed back. And it's like, okay, now do we take a huge risk and change things? Or do you just live with what you got? And you're not going to want to play like this too often in the season. You prefer never to be pushed this far back and this much under the pressure. But, like, you're going to have one or two. Until we're a stronger team, we knew who we were coming into this. Until you're a stronger team with more options and people in form, you can't say to yourself, there isn't going to be a couple of games like this. We had Liverpool recently, which felt kind of like this too. But we, you know... We got beat there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and that's that's the only thing I will say is I want people to at least be able to be honest to say we're judging this on the result, which is fine, which is fine. And, you know, we had a lead, and so game state does matter. I thought the way we defended that lead was relatively organized and effective for most of the second half. Towards the very end, they created some openings. I thought in the first half we played a little more, but when we tried to play with them a little more, I thought we were a little more open and ropey defensively, and I don't know that we had a lot of joy. Five shots in the game. It's not how you draw it up, but it's a win. And and I'm okay leaving it at that for now. I think the obvious news here, Tim, is that while it was not Saka's best game, and let's remember we're one game removed from him looking great against West Brom. Now, granted, that's just West Brom, but I'd argue where we are and with our aspirations in the league we need to be good against the West Broms of the world more than the Chelsea's of the world, right? We're we're trying to accrue points to get to top mm-hmm. four, not yet to win a title. But a player who was great in this game and who does seem to be going from strength to strength, he's a cliche, is, is Smith Rowe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what you could say. I mean, he is technically older than Saka, which is just another way of saying he is older than Saka. I don't know why I put the word <laughs> technically in there. Um, those Those two things are actually identical. But But what I mean by that is, he feels younger in the sense that he's only sort of really broken into the team on Boxing Day. And so he's he's much younger in terms of his development in the first team. And he is already looking like one of our most consistent and reliable players. A player, again, sort of like Sack, unfortunately, that Arteta has trusted enough to move around. False nine against Villarreal in the first leg, right eight, left eight, left wing, number 10. I do think it's not a coincidence that the players thriving under Arteta are the ones that have versatility because Arteta has not really consistently allowed them to develop in one position. But Smith Rowe mm. is showing he can do it. I think he shows real composure and awareness in the box to be available for that goal. I think his his running at defenders was the one outlet we had in the game, pushing them back. He had that one beautiful run where he beats two guys and then nutmegs a third and the ball just gets away from him a little bit. His technical level, his energy, it all looks great right now. So... Free swim for you here, Tim. Um, would you say that Smith Rowe, sneaky highlight of the season at this point mm. right now? Yeah, yeah, I would. It, it's definitely him and Saka, isn't it? And it's mm. amazing that, um, you know, it's not just that they've broken into the team. They've become, you know, al- alongside Tierney, um, maybe you can make an argument for Xhaka as well, like the pillars of the team, um, the most important players. And, you know, you can look back since Christmas and you can almost draw a line through our performances and the bad ones tend to be without Smith-Rowe and the good ones are pretty much always with him. Um, in fact, I... I 
I'm sure someone must have done like a Smith Rowe league table of where of where Arsenal are. Look, we're the best uh, at making league tables that show us higher up the table. <laughs> From this date to this time, when the month was warm, we're the first. We're we're, not, we're top of the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like and, uh, nine. Uh, it's like nine wins, four draws, and four losses as of about a game ago. I think. Yeah, with yeah. Smith Rowe. Take that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it's it's top four form with him, or challenging for top four form with him, essentially. And I think I think it's an interesting point about him perhaps being younger than Saka in his development. Uh, maybe in an Arsenal respect, it it's easy to forget he did actually break into the team initially, or rather into the squad under Unai Emery, and very quickly under Emery. I think he scored at least two goals in that Europa League group stage in Emery's first season. It might have been three. And then he got injured. He got injured just as he was kind of breaking in. And then, you know, he had that abortive loan uh, to Germany, which, which you know, didn't work because of injury. And so really we lost a year at least of Smithrow, probably 18 months, um, to be quite honest. So, he, you know, it, it makes me think where would he have been without that? Um, you know, because he, he's... he's I think you can say him and Saka are operating at roughly the same level. And you're right, Saka's younger. But, um, you know, Smith-Rowe could have had this breakout season last season, I think. And how different could the Arsenal story have been? A, actually just having him at a number 10 from the beginning of the season. And B, just in terms of his own development, um, you know, if we think about the Smith, the player Smith Rowe could be in 12 months time at the end of next season. Well, that's where he could have been without this injury. You know, that loan to Germany potentially goes much better. And instead of developing him at Huddersfield, which I still think was a, was a really good loan spell for him, actually just playing in a team fighting for its life from relegation, but under, you know, under a young bright coach in Danny Cowley. Um, but just imagine if, you know, we'd, we'd given him, I mean, a bit like, um, I guess a bit like Joe Willock this year in terms of he played the Europa League group stage under Emery, scored a couple of goals, played quite well. We put him out on loan. Imagine if he'd have had six good months at Leipzig and we got him back at the beginning of last season. The Ozil stuff, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's really easy to forget that, you know, Ozil left in January, like we paid him to leave. And Smith Rowe, and the way he has played has made that a complete irrelevance. Um, well, not an, not an irrelevance from an administrative point of view, but on the pitch, nobody is pining for Ozil anymore. And, and that says a lot, because even at the beginning of this season, lots of people were, and I think lots of people, I think understandably, still think, well, if we hadn't frozen Ozil out, would have had him available at the beginning of this season, things might have been different. But the, the biggest credit you can give to Smith Rowe is that I have barely heard Ozil's name since he left. And um and he he's he's just given us um he's given us a couple of new dimensions really because he can play that number ten he can play wide left wide right he can play as a pair of eights and I think that's why Arteta really values him because he's so kind of multifunctional and multifaceted like that and yeah as as I said on the instant reaction pod I think he's shown more sides to his game than Erdgaard maybe Erdgaard's actual talent level is is potentially higher his ceiling might be higher but I think you have to play kind of you have to give the keys of the team to Erdgaard is is what I really think whereas with Smith Rowe I don't think you do have to I think you can if you want to but I think you can also just plug him in um, to the wider, the, the kind of wider network, and and what he does, I mean, it, it, 
you you can compare him to quite a lot of players. Like he reminds me a bit of Paul Merson. He reminds me a little bit sometimes of of Alex Kleb. Um, but I, I guess the player he he reminds me of, not so much in execution, but in his overall style, is Thomas Rosicki, just because he has that really nice get the ball, move the ball, move arse, mm. you know, just that constant movement of himself and the ball and popping up wherever he is needed. He, I, I guess also he's he's a little bit like an El Nenny, but in the final third that faces forward, you know, that that kind of just that release valve for whoever needs it. And for a young player, it's immensely mature the fact that his economy of touches, it would be so easy for him, particularly with the credit he's getting now to start kind of thinking, well, okay, I'm going to try and beat a couple of players. I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to try the Hollywood pass all the time. He doesn't. He's just that connective tissue for the team. And he, he plays way beyond his years. And, uh, and I'm really, really excited about what we'll see from him next season. Hopefully when the season's a bit more meaningful and we don't have to look at players like Smith Rowe and Saka as projects, but as, you know, actual pillars of a team that's, that's really competing for something meaningful. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is sort of interesting. We picked apart some quotes that Arteta had about Smith Rowe, uh, following the West Brom game, certainly didn't seem to have any impact. Came out, played well, scored the goal. Uh, another brilliant performance, I think, sort of a man-of-the-match type performance, if you could say that about an, an attacking-type player in a game where we defended a lot. But even though it's not my instinct to normally focus on this side of the pitch, when you have a game where you're defending a 1-0 lead against a Champions League finalist for so long, Clive, you got to look at the defense. I, I think for me, it's the old game of two halves for the back line. Um, I think, you know, obviously Gabriel put Marie in it a little bit, and then he did the rest of the work to let Havertz get in for their biggest chance of the game. Holding uh, had players run off him a couple of times for a couple of good chances. I-, I didn't think the first half was great from from the trio. I think that their passing and their tracking of runners was was not flawless. But, but in the second half, where their job was easier, where they were able to sit deeper, they were not in as much space. They could sort of feel the bodies around them and, and just concentrate on their defending. I thought they did a much better job. They also had some help from Thomas Party, who really was very influential in the second half, helping snuff out Chelsea attacks. So where do you come out on the, on the performance of the center backs? I think center back in general is a position of interest because Louise may not be staying. Saliba might be coming back. We think holding Marie and, um, and, uh, Gabriel obviously going to be sticking around. There's rumors that we want another one, but I would sort of hope that we don't do that. So we could be looking at three of the guys competing to be starters next season. So do you have strong feelings on how they perform? Maybe half to half? Um, yeah, so not strong feelings because because nothing matters like it did two few weeks ago. But what I will say... As strong feelings as you can about beating a London rival in a game that ultimately means nothing to us. Yeah, <laughs> how about that? that is, it's interesting. So there's been a lot of good chat about Chelsea's um, system and how they play and how they defend. And when we did give the ball away, it's on the halfway line. That's what they actually they really want because they're quite front-footed in that middle third. They nick it, they transition very quickly. Their sprinters, Pulisic and Mount, and so they're really keyed in for that. And they gamble one on one and they press you off the ball. And it makes our defenders maybe freeze a bit, and they just delay. And when they pass into their target, it, it doesn't make it right. So when when I hear people say, "Oh, he can't pass, can't distribute." I always look at, they can all pass. <laughs> I always look at the runs. 
I look at how they're being defended against and what we're doing. Was it quick enough? Did we get onto our, our correct foot quickly? Did we do it one time or was it third touch? There's always a reason why the pass doesn't get there. It's not just because someone's got a club foot. Do you know what I mean? And so I think once we went deeper, and this probably is the way to play Chelsea, because what you've now done, you've now said, you're not going to transition on us. You're not going to nick it off us high. You're not going to sprint through us either century or down the sides. You're going to have to play into a low block. And then hopefully, if we were a bit smart, we could get out, but we didn't get out very often. And I think low block defending... Let's be honest, right? Those three are pretty good at low block defending. Rob Holding is a really good low block defender. Not so good in the halfway line. Not so good at switching play. Gabriel can play the halfway line pretty well. I think distribution, we've got a little bit of work to do. But one-on-one defending, excellent. Absolutely excellent. And he grew into that game. Padlin Marie, I find him harder to read. I think some days if he can play in the halfway line, you're thinking, I'm thinking, wow, you're brave. What are you doing there? And he makes it look easy. Another day, he lacks a bit of composure. His distribution is quite good. I don't mind those three. I feel I feel one of them should be better. I'm not sure which one. But the fourth one needs to be really good. And there could be a case for five, depending if we are going to use this three at the back on occasion, which I am not against, by the way. Um, people seem to dismiss it, but... You know, I don't, I'm not against it at all. Look at the teams in Europe that are using it. Some very strong teams. Inter Milan just won the league using it. Bayern Music using it on occasion. Obviously, now Chelsea in Champions League final, FA Cup final, probably the best team in the league this calendar year. So I'm not against the system. It's just how you deploy it and, and how you use it flexibly. So our three centre-backs, not bad. I do feel there's something missing. And the next phase for them is, for, for me, is... We've got to be comfortable one-on-one defending much higher at the pitch because we can't create the overloads we need unless we can distribute well or trust people without babysitters. If we're keeping too many people back, we're going to be outnumbered as we move forward. And so again, looking for development, we've got to be, you know, I always say, I always say the same story. As soon as I saw Sol Campbell and Carlo Torre together playing, I thought that's it, we're going to win the league in two minutes because they were on their own all the time sometimes it's three against two and they dealt with it that means someone else could have a lazy day and create and find space and go and do their thing somewhere else it's very important that one-on-one defending aspect is there we feel comfortable with it we can gamble we can gamble pushing on the people we can gamble pressing we can gamble on transitions we can overload and counter attacks because we know the back door is secure I think that's the next phase for us but I don't think it's just down to the the back two or back three, whatever it is, it's definitely down to the two in front. And it's no surprise to me that some of our big days have come with two solid double pivot players that know their roles in front, that really do supplement the the two centre-backs. And um, I'm hoping that, that our fast-learning coach can see that stability in centre-mid really does help stability at centre-half and allows us to have some big results. And I hope that's a learning lesson from last night. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, obviously, this time of year, what you want to be doing is learning because uh, whatever lessons you learn right now can be beneficial next season. There's very little you can do at this point to impl- uh, to influence what's going to happen this season, although we can maybe, at the end of the pod, touch on what it could mean if we win our next two games, where we could finish. Um, but before we do that, there's a lot of lessons that we need to learn. And I think one of them, maybe the most important one, is that there is a better way to shave your privates. That is a lesson that is never going to wear out. That is a lesson that is going to save you pain, embarrassment, 
discomfort. And that is something that we are here to do. And in case you missed the breaking news, you can now do that, not with the Lawnmower 3.0, but with the Lawnmower 4.0. That's right, 4.0. This is the absolute state-of-the-art device when it comes to shaving your privates. And oh, by the way, your chest, your sideburns, whatever you want to shave. Shave off an eyebrow. Live a little. What's wrong with you? We're locked in our house anyway for a few more weeks. You might as well shave off an eyebrow. It'll grow back. But the point is you can do it with skin-safe technology, with ceramic blades. There's a 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight that'll show you where you're going, when you're going there. Because you want to see that? You want to get it right? Look, I have had some bad experiences. I have used a razor that's been in the shower for a long time, and I can tell you it did not go well. You know you've done it too. You wait, you wait, you wait, then you look down there, and you're like, okay, I guess I'll try this razor. Yeah, it rarely goes well. Don't do that. Use a lawnmower 4.0. It's got, so first of all, we're all going to be traveling again. Maybe you'll be traveling to our live event. That'll be great. It has a lock switch so that when it's in your travel bag, the button doesn't accidentally get depressed and starts manscaping the inside of your travel bag. You don't want that. So there's a lock switch for travel, four different settings for guard lengths now. That's new. Oh, it has wireless charging, by the way. Electromagnetic induction wireless charging helps protect the battery life. Also just makes it easier and sleeker to set it in its little stand. Charges up. Long, long battery life. You can use it in the shower, wet or dry. So go for it, get it, get the lawnmower 4.0. Use the promo code ArsenalVision, please. You'll get 20% off and free worldwide shipping if you use the promo code ArsenalVision at manscaped.com. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. That's manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Get the lawnmower 4.0 and save 20% and get free shipping when you use promo code ArsenalVision. And there's one line of copy in this ad read they sent me that I won't read. But if you'd like to hit me up on social media or somewhere else, I will tell you what it is. And you know, if I'm not willing to read it out, it's got to be pretty dicey. So if you want to know what that is, get in touch. Lawnmower 4.0 is here. Go get it. Manscaped.com. Promo code ArsenalVision. Clive, is that enough? Yeah, it's more than enough. Please carry on with the podcast. You know, when we go to this live event, my man, I'm going to show you that Lawnmower 4.0. Get you comfortable with it. We're going to be getting you smooth as can be, my friend. Oh, I love making him uncomfortable. Okay, Tim. He's still here? <laughs> Presumably? Yes. Hopefully. Okay, good. Good. Double checking. Um, I, I want to get to the Arteta press conference or press response. And and there's other things in the game that we can touch on too, certainly. Um, but I, I think this is interesting. He was pretty feisty and he was pretty annoyed. He basically came out with a, you know, a, a pretty strong comment that he feels his his latest words have been taken out of context. It did sound, to be fair, like he had kind of thrown some of his players under the bus recently. He wanted it to be very very clear that wasn't the case, that he backs his players, that they're all in it together, that they've been giving him 110%, you know, that you can see how hard they're battering, how, battling, how hard they're fighting. I think he actually said 120%. I could be wrong. You never know when you're over 100% how much over 100% you're giving. But, you know, I've seen different people saying, oh, he lost the plot. What are these comments? And other people saying, this is what you want from your manager. Now he's rallying together, bringing the the, the players together, not throwing them under the bus, not pulling a Mourinho. So I, I guess your mileage may vary and it depends where you fall on it. So I assume you've watched the clip of it. You've seen the comments. How do you react to them? Yeah, I, I found it quite odd because I, I still, and so I, I should say, um, you know, as a kind of emotional reaction, I'm, I'm not like angry at Arteta or I don't think he's lost it or anything like that. Um, I think the important thing is how the players take that message and, and that was clearly for them. And if it creates a bit of siege mentality or, you know, maybe mends some quite clumsy things, I think he said, then that's, that's kind of fine. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I'm not kind of sitting here going, oh my 
god this guy's lost it what's he talking about i mean i've i've read the comments and i've seen the video and i do i mean i'm not going to say throwing players under the bus i think he's just quite matter of fact with the stuff that we kind of know where he said you know you can get players to a certain level and you can't get them any further and there is some truth to that um i still think it was quite a clumsy thing to say because um all of the aforementioned could be said about the manager um and you know the need to be ruthless and and i think again i think that's true we definitely need to be ruthless so i i'm not i'm still not entirely sure what he's getting at in terms of being um, misconstrued or misreported maybe he read something that he didn't like somewhere i i tend to think that those quotes were reported quite faithfully i've not personally not seen anywhere where they were like really twisted maybe they were in like the darkest recesses of the tabloids which to be fair is not news or information i, I think consume. you can just say tabloids to be fair and, and the other yeah, word the other yeah. words are presumed <laughs> yeah yeah have and, anything and, other than dark recesses <laughs> well quite quite and so and you know maybe there's you know just something i haven't seen and initially when i first saw it i wondered if it was to do with the smith row comments you know um because didn't he say something about he said something about you know he he needs to do more of that um you know scoring yeah, well, he goals says he scores like, a goal he says today he gets his first goal and that's partly why we are where we are um yeah, he has the talent yeah. to get to 15 goals 10 assists he needs to do it basically you know? yeah and cuz i can understand how that might be misconstrued and how um, again i'm not sure i saw it misconstrued anywhere personally but i i could see how that could be misconstrued and and how um that could have been taken out of context and how he might be a bit annoyed about that but the stuff about you know not being able to get the players um above their level i mean cuz here's the other issue with that comment um, that's kind of the job at the moment. We're living in la-la land if we think we're just getting rid of all of these players in the summer and there's going to be takers for them. Like, even pre-COVID, there weren't takers for these players. Like, mm. you know, Ozil, Kolasinac, Mustafi, that, that's not a COVID problem. That's a that's an average players on massive wages problem. We couldn't get rid of Bentner and Danielson back in the day and they were young. Like that is not it's a problem exacerbated by covid, but it's not a covid problem. And so he probably is going to have to work with a lot of these players next year. Um, you know, he might have to offer a new contract to Elneny, who, to be fair, I think he likes. And I don't think he was including in that, um, you know, but but we're not. There just isn't a universe where all every single one of these players is going to be gone in the summer. Um, and so a big part of the job is you're going to have to coach. them, <laughs> And, you know, he, he could. He could point to some successes here. He could say someone like Callum Chambers. Um, whatever you personally think of Callum Chambers, he could say, look, two months ago, this guy was barely a member of the squad, and now he's a member of my first 11, and he's playing well. Um, and that that could be, you know, if, if um, I don't think this will happen, but if Vinay or Josh said, right, okay, sum up why you should keep this job, that's the kind of stuff he should be saying, you know. He should be saying, I can coach these you know look yes we need to do things to the squad but i can also coach these guys to be better so i always felt that those initial comments were a little bit clumsy um to be honest and and personally i haven't seen anywhere where they were enormously misconstrued or even really enormously dramatized but that that doesn't mean that it didn't happen i guess yeah I, I, it's tough right because 
He says, nothing is broken inside, nothing is broken. They will try to put things on me that I never said. You can see the spirit of the team from the first minute. You can see that. You can never doubt their efforts and how much they try. I think it is a reaction to the, I can only push some of them so far and, and they cannot evolve beyond that comment. Um, mm. I do think that- Which he did say. Yeah, he did say it, right. And and to be fair, it has a little bit of the, the quality of, you know, if I say, no, my wife's fine, she's okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's some things that she'll never be, but that's okay. And then- I go on, you know, go to the press after that and go, I've always loved my wife. What are you talking about? My wife's the best. I've always loved her. I have always loved her. Like, my wife's going to look at the second comment and be like, you okay? <laughs> you, you, sure, you sure you've always loved me? Because you sound, it's a little bit of me thinks he doth protest too much. I think the only problem also is he put a lot of weight on the, you see the effort, you see that they fight. There's never been doubt in that. And unfortunately, it comes a little too close to the heels of a second leg against Villarreal when I think some people would say they didn't see that fight. So there may be some incongruity yeah. there, but certainly they did fight in this game. Uh, you did see a, a battling spirit. And as much as battling spirit isn't what you want to be saying about Arsenal Football Club, like you'll take it right now and, and it's totally fine. Um, which leads us to the point, Paul, that now we kind of have to contextualize where we are because frankly, we are... First of all, mathematically capable of qualifying for Europe. And by Europe, I mean the UEFA conference, which I think we're all going to be fans of that. Look, if the Europa League song is a banger, the UEFA conference song is just, it's going to be an earworm. We're going to be singing it nonstop. But since Boxing Day, when we did ditch the diabolical back three, brought in number 10 in Smith Rowe, ultimately brought in Odegaard, it's 41 points, which is third, behind only City and United, 38 goals fourth, 20 goals conceded joint fourth, on underlying metrics, not quite as good, but the XG, I think, is third or fourth. The XG against is more like mid-table. Obviously, there's the disappointing Europa League exit. But if you want to be results-driven, and if you want to zoom out a little bit and say, we're going to have Arteta next year, so where, you know, where, how do we feel about that? How do you feel now looking at that run and saying, you know what, Arteta has basically achieved everything at least statistically, we'd want him to achieve since he made that adjustment on Boxing Day. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'd add in a couple of other things, which is like people say things like it, it, when they see those numbers, they're like, but it doesn't feel like that. And I get that. But like everybody has struggled almost like the, our rivals, West Ham, uh, Everton, Liverpool, uh, like Look what just happened with Chelsea, right? I mean, they, they've been a team that's been um, bombing along for ages. Uh, they just beat City. Um, okay, maybe City are slightly off the boil. We just beat Chelsea. Okay, maybe they've got their eye on the FA Cup final and the Champions League. But you've seen a bunch of these results where teams who aren't supposed to lose their next game lose their next game. It's just a hard season to put together a run that feels good for that club. doesn't matter which club it is. Um, so it's relative. And relatively, we've been doing pretty well. And I think we also had a sense that lately we've maybe come off the boil a little bit. It was good in the early months. But then you look at our schedule and we've played the top 10 teams in the league over the last three months. Uh, like all of them. City, United, uh, well, United was probably the first one we played, so it's maybe just shades outside the three months. But we played, you know, City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Leeds, Villa. You know, we had a couple of easy games, but mostly we played all rivals around us: uh, West Ham, Everton, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Leicester, 
uh, spurs all quite recently. And so it probably wasn't going to feel great, but relatively we've got results and relatively against the bigger teams, we've got results. Um, it doesn't mean we don't have our issues. We know we do. Uh, and mixed into that, you have your injuries, bit of bad luck, which we've seen, Well, we've just had some good luck. So we'll take some of that. We've also, I mean, we have had good luck in the, in the middle of the bad luck, but we've, there's definitely some games you could say, man, there's, there was three points there. We came, we threw away for stupidity, not just bad luck. Um, so it's going to be very hard to analyze what this season is. I think in terms of style of play, I think in terms of level of football, um, I mean, it's just a season of two seasons from December 26th. And uh, But I wouldn't say like since December 26th, all our problems are solved and we're great and we're playing great and it's an anomaly. I mean, there's still lots of issues to work on. But at least there's hope, not just in the numbers and in the stats, um, in the style, in the performances, in the line lineups we've put out there. They're very attacking lineups. Sometimes we're trying to work out where we're going to put all those attacking players. Uh, good games or bad. Um, and so I don't know if that answers the question of what's it all mean and where we are. I don't think we're going to know, especially, you know, the last three, four games here. We got two more to go. We might get decent results against Palace and then Brighton. You know, what do the last four games mean, given it's kind of that end of the season? Um, well, it'll look good, and we're playing some football in it, some uh, hopefully some attractive football in it with with our better players. But we won't know. It, it'll be good for the squad. It'll be good for the manager. It'll be good for the club. It'll be good for our transfers if we don't go into the summer as a dumpster fire and if there's yeah, a sense good. that there's a direction. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's just very hard. Like I, I, I'm maybe one of the more positive on our, on the December 26th and from there on, but it's not because I think everything's great and wonderful and fine. I just think there's something there to work with. There's something there to build on. We're do, we've got interesting lineups and interesting style of play. We've got some good players you know, we, we've had some challenges. We've had injuries. It's just, I want this season behind us and I want, I kind of want to do over. And if we can clear out <laughs> a couple what? more you're players. Not, you're not getting it. <laughs> At the, well, sorry, <laughs> bad news. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, next year will feel like, to me, I'm hoping will be the season I thought it was this one was going to be at the start we'll of the year. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's been horrible. It has. It has. And, and look, I mean, we... We could still get a St. Totteringham's Day out of this season. I know people say, ah, tin pot club. Why does that matter? It matters. Finishing above your rival matters. That would be good. I would like it. I like finishing the season with things to celebrate. I don't want to be miserable if I can avoid it. I know people are saying, that's not true. I, I know you. That's exactly what you want to do. I promise I don't. Um, and, you know, here's the thing, Clive. Like, I, I could... I think you almost have to sit down and make a pros and cons list about this Arteta situation right now to kind of get your mind organized because... If we want to be honest and fair, you know, I was very, if you remember, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I wanted him out Christmas Day. The way he turned things around on Boxing Day and the improvement in results and improvement in attacking play and improvement in the way we were playing got me back on board. I even got to the point of saying, I apologize. I was wrong. I was too early on those opinions. And then I started to go the other way. I think the mistake we make is sometimes expecting that progress has to be linear. But the problem is we had reached such a nadir, such a low by Boxing Day that 
the, the confidence in, in what this guy was doing was dented so much. I think once you get to that point, it only takes one negative experience to make you feel like you're right back there. And so things like what happened against Villarreal and tinkering with the formation, some of which admittedly very much influenced by injuries. I think right now if I had to pick on him about anything, what I'd say is, Mikel, pick a system. Pick a solution. Stick with it even if the players don't fit it perfectly. Start building for that. Put Saka in his position. Put Party. Put Tierney when he's available. <laughs> put Smithrow in their position. Let's start building for something. So, you know, that is where I'd like to see us go from here. What's your take on this? this I mean, if we look at it, we could finish with what? I think 61 points. We did our predictions preseason. I think that's below most of us, although maybe, Paul, one point above yours. Did you pick 60 points, I want to say? so I, pick, I can't remember. I picked low, I know. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> what do they call it? The soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, yeah, yeah. But, All about expectations. <laughs> well, if you set them low, it's easier to get it. No, I, I mean, look, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, in fact, I have them right here. So l- let's just see what they are. Season 20, 21 predictions. And if we go to Clive, I'm not going to tell you what you expected. Okay, I'll tell you 68 points. We're not quite going to get there. But, um, Paul, yeah, you had 63. Scott had the lowest at 60. So we have a potential to finish above Scott's prediction. Our league finish, we predicted fourth, fifth, and sixth was rough. So we're not going to get there. But on points, we're going to be within two of what I predicted, above what Scott predicted, and just under Clive and Tim's predictions. So... It wasn't a fun journey all the time, but can we look at it and say maybe it's not so far outside the realm of of the standard that we expect that we can we can kind of just swallow it, move on from it, and and think that that it's a building block. Is that is that overly generous? I'm not inclined to be overly generous, but I'm willing to at least look at that viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, you, you have me a journey. Right? <laughs> I think. Um... The music or the or the or the, the, the we're, we're on a journey, right? And um, and people look at the journey with their own context. Some people are don't suffer; they don't suffer anything. They look at the last result. That's it. You're not doing it. Yeah, we ain't qualified for you for twenty five years. You need to go. Are you, are you still here? <laughs> I read that comment a lot. And you know, people just switch off until a good result comes on. They switch back on again. I think I'm sort of. Um, in a, in a sort, of, sort of sanguine place, really. And it's interesting where we all go on moments of trauma. The last couple of weeks have really been revealing. The club has revealed itself significantly from top to bottom. It feels as though, you know, when we analyse on these podcasts, what, you know, we all do it differently. I, I tend to look at the horizon and, and analyse that way. But actually, I find it quite easy now because the horizon is clear. I used to have doubts about KSE. Well, that, those doubts have absolutely been realised. Not huge doubts, but I always wanted to see the positive about them. But now I know what their game was. So, you know, that's they're out in the open. They've got to react, right? During that whole scenario, we saw the youthfulness of our chief executive. Suddenly, now we talk about inexperience in our executive and the gaps on the board. And this is good because this is true. This is really true. Look at the coaching style, young, coaches, young, inexperienced, learning on the job, director of football, young. This has all been revealed, also revealed by actions or lack of actions and projected actions. And so that brings a level of fear, lack of trust. Why should we trust? And then you look at the players and, you know, Tim was was talking about, there's lots of clubs in our situation about 
you want to lose a lot of players because the market froze last year because of COVID. It's not just us that was stupid. Many clubs couldn't move players on. What we had to do was pay players, the unsaleables, get rid of them. But we have got some saleable assets that are in better shape, better shape football-wise, got something about them, may not see where we want to go, but are usable by other people. So I'm a little bit more hopeful they will move. The price will be interesting, but I'm a bit more hopeful that people like Lacazette, for example, there seems to be something happening there. Bellerin, for example. I think a lot of these things were in the post, and I think people will be sorting themselves out. Some of that explains for me when you have a situation where the club squad is going through a moment of change, you can't always have the commitment that you need. And I think that's driving some of the inconsistencies. If you've been told by your manager, we, we're not going to renew you, it must have an effect on you. Mm. And they would know by now. It's just, just the rhythms of a football club. It's very difficult to explain to people. You know, there's a, there's a huge change cycle going on at Arsenal. I think it's a complex discussion that maybe I, I wanted to have two weeks ago, but no one wanted to listen to it. But then when Arteta came in, he, he I said it before, he sold a dream. And then he found out who was committed to him. And maybe when I looked at it, um, the commitment phase of change was around the FA Cup win. And maybe it wasn't. The commitment phase of change is really now. The FA Cup win came too soon and people thought we were on a progression. The progression didn't come. We reacted to it. There was a lot of internalisation. That internalisation led to the January exits. We're still going through the who is here, who is committed to this club. I think as soon as we do that, get through that phase, then I think we will start to see progression. But that commitment phase has been elongated by the state of the football world, the market, and the inactivity. Some are fault. Some maybe asking too many high prices. Some just the state of where we are. And I think this is why my mind always goes forward and I'm thinking there are next steps that need to happen that are absolutely obvious. I hope they all happen. They're probably not going to happen. I'm probably dreaming. But there's a moment coming where it's just only, it's just truth. It's just it, the moment of truth is really here. And it's a significant pivot in our history. And I have to say that everything I've read and seen, and even from the fan reaction, one people that I'm sort of connected to, everyone can see the problem statement. And I think that's a better place than where we've been historically, where the problem statement could be debated. But we know the problems are all different layers now. We either react or we don't. It's put up or sharp. And so I'm really quite encouraged by that. You know, I'm encouraged by the fact it's all out there. So now we just watch it close and watch it develop. If these are not the people to develop this club going forward, then they have to go. I don't care what level, they just have to go. Because no longer can this club be allowed to drift when everyone knows the issues that we have. There is no debate. There's no FA Cup to hide anything. There's no Europa League file to hide something. There's no spurts of 20-game unbeaten wins to maybe think everything's okay. I've fallen for all of it. Because now it's here. And I'm really encouraged by the fact that I think we're going to do something from top to bottom. So that's where my head is. And I don't mm. think we've got any other choice. We can stay in the pit if we want to. But I don't think that's what football should be for us in our lives. It should be something that adds to our lives. We need to see his club move forward all we can do as fans is pressurise in our own way for some people it's, it's much more than that but make sure that everyone knows that we know that yeah. we can see and you need to react Here, here's all I would say right I think I, I think it is 
absolutely okay to be whatever kind of fan you want to be and take whatever you want out of football because it is ultimately a distraction from life. It feels like all that matters in life at times. That's how passionate it can be. And I know for me it does. There are times when I can't sleep because all I'm thinking about is Arsenal and something, I, I'll, something pop in my head. I'll be like, I, I got to say that. I, I got to say that to someone. You know, because like, because I'm, I'm thinking about it nonstop. But like, if what you like is the data, dive into the data. If what you like is the emotion of the match day, dive into that. There's no wrong way to do it. The only thing I would say is the an, the analysis is always going to be to some extent driven by your biases because Tim, if we win these next two games and finish on 61 points, we'll wind up two points away from what I predicted. It feels like a terrible mm. season. It feels horrible. Like it's been disaster. We're going to finish within two points of what I predicted. If there weren't two of the worst, craziest VAR offside calls you've ever seen, we could be on 67 points. And then what would you be saying? It's When you're in it, I see the Saliba situation aggravated me and how bad we were before Boxing Day. And, you know, you see the games that we let slip away or what happened to Villarreal, and it's hard to contextualize it because you're in the middle of it, right? Um, how do you make sense of the fact that there probably are very real things to be upset about with how this season went and mistakes, and yet the characterization of it as being a disaster, if we wind up on 61 points, is probably not really a fair reflection of what we all thought was possible this season because I find myself... Challenge. You want to know the God's honest truth? The God's honest truth is I find myself really annoyed with Arsenal in this season and this coach and really annoyed, just just generally disappointed. But the analytical part of me that looks at it and what we've actually achieved has to admit we're probably going to wind up coming in not far off what I thought was possible. So how do you how do you find a way to synthesize those disparate feelings for people who are where I am, struggling to, to make sense of those things? Yeah, it, it kind of, um, it, it feels like in a way, so you, you, you're right in terms of what the points total could be. Um, and we probably didn't anticipate Leicester. I mean, maybe we should have anticipated Leicester because they've they've done it before, but we certainly didn't anticipate West Ham. We maybe didn't anticipate Everton, but again, that's, that's not really an enormous surprise. I, I do feel like that perhaps as much as we feel like we've been unlucky at times this season, when I look at the Emery season for example when we finished fifth and only a couple of points off top four i think we were quite lucky extraordinarily so yep mm -hmm. yeah we we talk a lot about that 22 match unbeaten run at the beginning of that season when really our metrics were not in fifth place they were more towards kind of seventh eighth which is probably i mean it, it isn't probably you just have to say with the league table that's about where we're trending we're probably going to finish slightly below that or maybe on that this season we finished eighth last season so where maybe we've been thinking of ourselves as a fifth six maybe we're really a seventh eighth um, and we have to reevaluate on that basis and you know look may, maybe West Ham I, actually I think West Ham will fall out of that a little bit next year um, for example I'm not necessarily I'm not going to predict that Leicester will uh, Leicester are a really, really solid team with good players and they can build and go again, particularly if they get in the Champions League or maybe even win the FA Cup. So, you know, in, in many ways, it's our chickens coming home to roost because Leicester have overtaken us and we've perhaps been a bit complacent about that and thought that that wouldn't happen. Um, you know, maybe West Ham are about where Wolves should have been uh, at this stage in their project, but things have just gone. Well, they're in a bit of transition. They're replacing a lot of old young play uh, old players with young players. So, you know, maybe if you replace West Ham with Wolves, you kind of say, mm, yeah, that was in the post. 
So really, I think it, it's maybe a sense that we've stayed still in the last few years. But what's happened is that the competition's gotten better. So I think I think you can say all of that, Elliot. But at the same time, we all know even if we get to 61 points, and that's broadly what um, you and, and others predicted, that like that's still not good enough. Um, that's still absolutely not good enough. And, not for the club and where we, we want to go. No, whether it's good no, enough for what no. we had available to us this season is obviously a different, you know, different kind yeah. of question. Yeah. And what we're kind of saying is if everything goes really well and we get a bit lucky, we can get fifth. And even that is like, well, you know, that, that's not where we. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So we're, we're basically trending to finish somewhere between fifth and tenth. And it just depends on the role of the ball in a couple of games where that might be. So it's it's, you know, you're, you're right. But at the same time, that's that's still underwhelming. And, and I'm kind of with Clive here. I think maybe that, well, not maybe, I think that is probably welcome, that kind of, okay, been saying that like Leicester, for example, are going to overtake us and maybe Everton for a few years. Well, it's here now. And now West Ham have done it as well. So you've really, really got to deal with it. Um, and, you know, it's 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 sla- it was creeping up around the corner, but now it's punched our face and taken our wallet, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And I think it it is a case that the fact that we're talking about whether 63 points would have been a great season or maybe it's 68 and 61 is not so bad. By the way, still not guaranteed to be 61. It could be 57. It could be 58, which, you know, not a great season. Um, and, and the Villarreal thing's not okay. Like, I'm not trying to tell anybody who's really aggravated by this season not to be, because I have been. I got to admit it. But vice versa, there's definitely cause to say, it's maybe not toys out of the pram level bad. I think the point you've made, Tim, which is the important one, is that's nowhere near where this club should be and wants to be. And for that to change, there are people above Arteta, or you might argue since no one is above Arteta, Arteta himself, have to start resolving this summer. And in future pods, we're going to be talking about some of this because, for example, Chris Wheatley is reporting that Lacazette may be given a one-year contract extension. And you just look at the plasters being applied again and say... This is a club committed to short-term fixes that does not know how to get on a long-term path to, to success. And that is going to be something, I mean, this summer maybe will be as important or more important than this season in terms of showing us what our future is going to look like. It is that important in terms of seeing that the club is committed to making some sound, smart decisions. Since we have a lot of time to go over that, I don't think we need to pick the bones out of this any more than we have. Might even sneak in another episode for you tomorrow. But we've got Monday's pod with no game over the weekend to talk maybe a little bit about Aubameyang. He looked a little disconsolate to be subbed off. The Lacazette news, if that develops, what's happening at Old Trafford as we speak right now because it looks like the Liverpool team bus has been blocked again and there's huge protests outside Old Trafford. So we'll see how that develops. So there'll be a lot to talk about on uh, Monday. So we don't need to get to it now. Let's save some hashtag content. Plus, we may have more concrete details on the live event, and I really, really hope that we'll be able to see a lot of you there. I realize that travel is is challenging, and not everybody is in the same boat in terms of vaccinations. And so um, I I do want to be clear that we will be doing this in the way that is the most safe and healthy for the people that can attend. But uh, hopefully it'll it'll be something that we can get enough people together to have a nice time and celebrate a new season together. Um, I will say that you guys have done an amazing job leaving reviews that we've asked for. And it, it is so kind and so appreciated. So next week we will be picking a couple of reviews um, from various places and, and sending some shirts your way for that. So there's still time if you want to leave us reviews. Apple would be great because that's the one that updated the way that they're doing it. But wherever you want to leave it is fine. We'll look at a couple different places and pull them at random. 
Um, that would be greatly appreciated. In any event, you know we love you and we're glad you're here. So, uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paul. Woohoo! Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter. Yankee Gunner. Thank you so much for being here. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal Ten. Crystal Palace News.